This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt for Hour 3. I want to talk to you a bit about some national security, but not really in the breaking news sense, more in the theoretical, uh, conceptual sense of things. Um, What you see is some interesting things happening within conservatism when it comes to national security, obviously, as a sort of corollary to the rise of Trump. U.S., this is from The Sun, a U.K. newspaper. U.S. sends special forces to Russian border as NATO is poised to strike back against Vladimir Putin's aggression. Uh, So there's this concern right now that the Kremlin is going to have nuclear-capable missiles deployed in the Russian province of uh, Kaliningrad, uh, which borders Poland, Belarus, and Lithuania. So there's a sort of Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. uh, And it's a place where the Russians are beefing up some of their strategic military military presence. And there's this discussion that's happening now as to whether well, for a couple things. First of all, everyone is being told constantly that Trump is in the pocket of Russia, that Trump loves Russia so much, and we're supposed to take that. Um, well, in part, it's based on some of Trump's statements. I understand that. But uh, how in Russia's pocket? We'll have to see. I remember when George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and or looked into his soul or whatever it was and saw a good man or a man he could work with. I think it was Nancy Pelosi who said, uh, unironically, years ago, that the road to peace in the Middle East runs through Damascus. Whoops. There's stuff running through Damascus, but it's not peace. It's uh, suicide, car bombs, um, as well as all kinds of other uh, horrific atrocities of war. So we look at uh, what's going on right now in the Baltics and with our NATO obligations. And I I do think that you're going to see more of this discussion, this debate happening that I'm going to get into with you now. Uh, And that is maybe there's going to be some rethinking of how we approach all this stuff. Um, I, I know that uh, with Trump sort of offhand and look, I all my friends and, and uh, colleagues from the sort of national security analysis side of things who at least do it publicly, not those who are still part of the intel community. They are taken aback at Trump's lack of knowledge on these issues. But understand that Obama's knowledge, for example, when he was coming in is forget about his ideology, just really his knowledge base uh, of national security and foreign policy was uh, very superficial. Uh, it, it was the sort of thing that you say at cocktail parties to sound like you read the New York Times every day when you read it a couple times a week, maybe. Uh, and that's all you do. 
but he had no no in-depth knowledge or understanding of any of these places. Never once did I hear Obama speak about any area of the world where I thought, oh, well, this is somebody who actually has the knowledge of a practitioner or is in some way sharing with you insights that you gain from experience or real research and, and real in-depth uh, real in-depth um, work on something. So Obama was always praised for his uh, sort of eloquence on international affairs. I mean, forget about the apology tour and all that, but it was to anybody who I think has spent real time on an issue. And, and there's various gradations of this, right? I mean, when I was in the CIA, uh, I was drilling down to the individual level but also in a specific country and a specific period of time, uh, I would also be it was like a grid and then it would get smaller. And then I'd be looking at a, a one province and maybe a city and then clusters of individuals in that city. Or this is you have very granular knowledge and the building is full of people, with very granular knowledge. How useful that is at any given time is a, a whole separate discussion. But you know, I can tell you this. Nobody from the Iraq office was going to walk into the China office and come across like they knew what was going on and vice versa right it's just not really possible there there are uh, there are experts there are subject matter experts we call them uh, SME subject matter experts maybe people say SME but I think it's SME uh, th and that's a real thing and Obama never spoke like a subject matter expert on anything really in my in my uh, recollection of it at least and on national security I think he was given a tremendous pass for being a true novice and not having any real uh, but there's also there, there's also not much stock that's put in new thinking. This is something I saw at the CIA, and it's something that you see now reflected in a lot of the policy discussions about issues like Russian deployments nearby NATO countries. And that is, if you want to sound smart, you just need to give an eloquent repetition of the consensus. You just need to use big, fancy words to reiterate, to repeat what has already been said about an issue um, when that is considered the sort of smart position on it, right? And there are a number of things for which we, we can point to a number of areas where you'll even yourself, you'll know, oh, okay, well, you know, we need a sort of a, a multilateral ap approach with allies in our counterterrorism fight, our counterterrorism fight. That's a meaningless statement, but people will go on TV because they're constantly asked in the three minutes of a TV segment or five minutes of a TV segment of which a counterterror expert might be given a full 90 seconds to speak. And if you're me, you're going to be given 60 seconds to speak and you're going to be interrupted three times if you're on at least one of the networks. Uh, that's not Fox. And they are going to ask you, how do you fix things or what can we do? And people say, oh, well, we need more cooperation with our allies. This is a meaningless statement. We're already cooperating with allies on any number of fronts when it comes to terrorism. Uh, it would have to be much more specific. But it, part of it is the time constraints and part of it is also... You know, some of this stuff is complicated, but I just love. It. But that's what you say if you want to. Say, if you want people to nod their heads and go, "Yeah, yeah, exactly." You know, more, more, more cooperation with our allies. That's, that's a smart thing to do. Um, if you wanted to push a piece, and this was from pretty much anywhere in the intelligence community, if you wanted to push it beyond where the intel was, what you could do is say uh, somewhere in the analysis portion of it, right? Because different, there's a whole other language from the intelligence community of how they pull together these pieces, what they're called, whom the audience is for any one of these pieces, and the level of classification determines who it can go to sometimes. And But they would, uh, one thing you would see is, you know, the, the possibility for, quote, miscalculation. That was something I'd come against. Oh, well, well, yeah, sure. 
this probably is going to mean nothing, policymaker, um, but there's always the possibility of miscalculation, right? If you wanted to sort of sex up your analysis piece in the intelligence community, you'd essentially do that, which is a fancy way of, well, worst case scenario, and this all of a sudden gets interesting. How likely is the worst case scenario? No, not very likely. But thinking that challenges the prevailing orthodoxy on national security is always going to sound, uh, it was always going to be jarring to those who work in national security because it is one of the great, because you don't even really have the clear bifurcation of two partisan sides to it. So you have national security, right? Uh, politics supposed to end at our borders, that sort of thing, which is not true, of course. National security is very politicized. But you at least have the pretense that this is sort of beyond politics. And on some issues, it is beyond, right? I mean, we can all agree North Korea, Democrats and Republicans agree North Korea is bad. You know, Democrats might think it's because of, like, what America has done in the world or something. But nonetheless, they can agree North Korea is bad. And uh, we, we, there's easier places, more obvious places for there to be uh, perhaps a bipartisan consensus to form than on a lot of domestic policy issues. But it's still an echo chamber. And the moment that you start to question the uh, echo chamber effect or you start to put in some dissonant notes into it, you're going to have all sorts of immediate pushback. And I always think it's a, a useful exercise. And I remember Christopher Hitchens speaking about this, uh, whom I, I've always found to be a very interesting guy. I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but he, it was provocative and interesting. And to, so few of the public intellectuals on the scene today on national security, on any issue, really try to be um, both honest and provocative. They can be provocative, but they're partisan. Right. Um, and if they're being honest, it's usually about things that nobody really cares about. Right? So to be honest and provocative is, uh, is, is a rarity in the sort of modern discourse about every major issue in this country, I think. Um, and you, you see this time and again. But if you want to sound smart on, the, on these issues, you repeat a certain line. Um, and, and Hitchens was somebody who would bring up that, you know, even on the issue of flat earthers, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, they're such they're such buffoons. You know, what a, what a dumb position. We all know the earth is round. OK, yeah, we all know the earth is round. Why? Why do we know that? And you, you begin to peel away at some of this and you'd say to yourself, OK, even if that is still a true thing, which it is right. The earth is round. I'm not I'm not actually I'm not advocating anything other than that. But ask somebody, ask yourself, why? How do we know that? Could you explain to a Could you explain to a 10 year old in 60 seconds why we know the earth is round? And what you start to get at is that there should always be the constant testing and retesting of orthodoxy, because orthodoxy is often just a fancy way of saying assumption. Uh, it, it, the, the false security of consensus. Right. This is what we are told. This is what smart people say. And if you don't want trouble, this is what you are going to say. And I think that some of our uh, military posture, or I should say foreign policy and national security posture, around the world falls into this category at this point. And that's not to say that it's wrong. It's just to say that you're not even allowed to bring, okay, well, why? And I think this issue of the, the Baltics that came up, there was a very, to me, interesting exchange between a few people here. You had Tucker Carlson speaking to Gary Kasparov. Uh, Tucker's doing a very good job with his new show over at Fox. Kasparov is a guy I like and is very interesting and has done my show both on Real News and I think we've had him on radio before too. Um, many times in the past, or numerous times, I don't know if many times is accurate, but, and Carlson said to Kasparov, why should I send my 19-year-old son to defend the Baltics? 
That's a that's a worthwhile question. The answer to it may be because we need to uh, adhere to our obligations and uphold the international order and deter Russian aggression. And, and I understand all of that. But it's still a question that should be asked and answered. It's not a question that should be shouted down. And our, our friend, and I will invite him on because I do not talk, especially about people that we have had on the show who have been kind enough to give us their time. And uh, I, I'm not really offering a criticism so much as just illustrating uh, the argument here. But uh, our friend Tom Nichols, who has joined us before, wrote below in a tweet about that Carlson to Kasparov, why should I send my 19-year-old son to defend the Baltics question? He wrote, I remember when Carlson pretended to be a conservative. And then uh, Michael Doherty, who is a verified Twitter guy, who is a, a sort of a, a writer, and I see him popping up on Twitter too, responded to that. American conservatism means committing yourself to the things the founding fathers valued, like maintaining Estonia's sovereignty, obviously being facetious here, but all illustrating quite an interesting point. If Russia did invade Estonia, um, whether you believe that we should act on our uh, Article 5 NATO obligations or not, uh, if Russia did do something provocative like that, keep in mind that they would do it under Maskarovka, right? They would do it as a form of stealth warfare. It probably wouldn't be tanks. It would be, you know, there'd be some sort of a, uh, you know, they'd say that a, a plane landed in distress and now there's concerns and they had to bring in another plane to secure the crash site and they've got sensitive military. I mean, you know, you can Tom Clancy this thing and that's what the Russians do. It's what they did in Crimea. It's what they did in Ukraine. It's what they've done in Syria. So although a little more openly in Syria. Um, we should start to ask. I know that this is happening now because Trump says things like they need to pay more for their own security. And he says things a little bit offhand without necessarily knowing the details and facts of these things, but gut instincts matter too. And I don't want to be in a in a position, or I don't think America should be in a position, not that me and America are inextricable, but we kind of are. Uh, I don't want to be in a position where questions are asked and the assumption is that they don't even need to be answered, especially when it comes to where we would send our young men and women to die, possibly, on a field of battle. The question, why should we send people to defend Estonia if it were to be invaded by Russia, is one that can both be, should both be uh, asked and answered. It shouldn't just be, well, we all know the, the answer is yes. Why? Why is the answer yes? And to what extent? You know, if we're going to have better foreign policy outcomes, if we're going to make sure that we don't have any repeats of some of the mistakes we've seen, yeah, under Obama and Bush administration. All administrations make mistakes on these issues. It's just a question of degree. Then I think it's worth it, instead of just being snarky and trying to shut these things down, I, I, I do think it's fair to ask, you know, why, would you send your 19-year-old to defend the Baltics? I think many of you would say, yeah, and I'd go too, you know, if those of you who are active or former military. But the point here I'm making is, okay, and let's get into the why. Because deterring Russian aggression is a question of uh, maintaining international stability, has an immediate impact on economic markets. Uh, Russia, if left unchecked, would eventually threaten directly American interests. You know, you, you, you go down the line. But I, I don't like this. Uh, oh, no, we you know, conservatism means conservatism means that there are correct answers to questions like when do we send troops and those answers can't ever be challenged. No, conservatism should mean 
questions are asked and questions answered in full. All right, we'll go to a break. We'll be right back. Beck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, so I wish I should have pulled up the audio of the exchange with Kasparov and, and Carlson. Uh, it, it's not that the I wasn't referring necessarily to the way that that discussion went on the show so much as some of the reaction I saw online. Um, and it seems like there is a particular sensitivity right now to questioning perceived wisdom of um, perceived wisdom of national security, uh, national security policies that have been in place for a very long time. Uh, Russian aggression is a buzz or a buzz phrase right now, I should say. There's a lot of people that seem very uh, seem very interested in, uh, yes, very concerned with whatever Russia is planning to do in the future. And I would just say, Keep in mind that there is it's not to say there isn't Russian aggression, but there is a very clear political agenda at play right now with playing up that Russian aggression, making it seem like this is something where everybody has to be very concerned, where this is an issue, uh, a grave matter uh, of national security importance. And so to in any way deviate from the perceived wisdom of the national security analyst cadre is to be making some sort of buffoonish uh, buffoonish error. What are we supposed to do with Russia? This is going to be a a question we handle here on the show a lot, I think, going forward. But it's too big a country to isolate. It's obviously way too big and scary with thousands of nukes, uh, a country to attack not that i'd ever advocate that but so these things are you can't isolate it you can't overthrow it you can't attack it so what do you do um we've tried the obama administration sanctions does anybody really want to make the case that those sanctions were so biting uh those sanctions were so serious Uh, they changed the outcome of anything in russia i mean i have a, a polish friend who used to tell me i always thought it's kind of funny that nothing brings the russian people together like suffering and it seems like there's some truth to that when you look at the public opinion polls of how much people support uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, it seems like there's some very real concerns out there uh, about the effectiveness of those sanctions. When you when you look at how few Russians, it seems, uh, have really had their minds changed about anything other than that the West is out to get them, that the conspiracy theories they're told are true. This is a very complicated matter, but it's going to be boiled down increasingly by the media into uh, Trump is a Russian stooge, Trump bad, uh, Russia bad, 
And if you start to wonder, well, are there ways to do? Remember when I remember when Obama said that he'd have more flexibility with Russia, and everyone's like, yeah, you know, after his election, not everybody, but Democrats didn't really freak out about it. Um, all right, team, uh, send me a message about today's show if you want on Facebook.com/slash Buck Sexton. Uh, back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. In the life team, I think if I could sort of just come back as something other than uh, a movie star or a rock star, but you'd really want to be a rock star that hits your peak in like the eight, like late 80s, early 90s. I feel like that was the greatest time to be a, a rock star. Um, so, you know, when CDs really were at their peak and, you know, your, your MTV and all that stuff going on. Now it's a little different. Uh, music is more sort of disaggregated. Music industry is more disaggregated. A- anyway, um, <laughs> forget about that for a second. I also think it'd be fun to come back as a professor of uh, the classics. Um, that would be, but I'd want to be a professor of the classics who consults on historical projects. One of my th- one of the things that's really annoyed me uh, for a long time about movies that are based on a historical event is it's one thing when they, for dramatic effect, you know, yeah, they got to throw in probably some beautiful ladies and, you know, that didn't really, you know, I, I like I can handle in Braveheart the French, prin- I mean, the princess from France who, you know, that didn't happen, but okay. You know what I mean? I can sort of go with that. Um, but when they can tell the truth of the story and they choose not to, and the actual story is more interesting than what they come up with, I get very annoyed. Um, so I... Recently, you know, I watched. Uh, I finished watching Spartacus, and these are things that I watch. And as I said, my brother's, uh, particularly my older brother, makes fun of me and says that if if there's what is it, uh, wine, uh, wine, wenches, swords, and beards, I'm in. That's what. He, and he's right. Anything that has that uh, movie, TV show, wine, wenches, dudes with swords, and 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 lots of beards, uh, I'm probably gonna be a fan of the show, um, and. There is, uh, for me at least, um, uh, you know, looking at this, I have to say, I, I thought that, you know, Spartacus, there was a little too much blood. There's a little too much of, of that stuff. But uh, some of the overall storyline actually tracked with the slave revolt against the Roman Empire. And they actually used, you know, the Marcus Crassus puts it down and uh, the names of the leaders of the revolt, you know, Gatticus, and um, uh, there's a whole, uh, now of course I'm forgetting something, uh, Gatticus and Crixus and uh, and others are actually the names of some of the slave revolt leaders, and they, so there is some, and uh, Glaba, who was the uh, uh, initial consul who was assigned to take them down, so while the show is, like, the actual fighting is ridiculous, and, you know, just as a, as a bit of advice to those of you who may find themselves in an actual uh, fight with a, a Roman uh, Roman testudo formation or something, you don't really want to do the running, jumping, two-leg drop kick when, you're, when you have armor and a sword in your hand. 
um, because people are going to stab you when you're on the ground and you're going to die. A lot of running drop kicks in this, like it's the WWF. And I just am like, where do they get this? I, that's one of the worst. Like, first of all, if you can't get out of the way of a two-legged drop kick, you got problems. Uh, it's, I mean, what move is easier to see coming than somebody running and launching himself in the air and then trying to mule kick? Anyway, it's crazy. But the overall storyline kind of tracks. I also watched, and I haven't really done a, a deep dive myself into it. I'm probably going to go into the Strand Bookstore over the weekend and pick up something on uh, uh, the Medici family. Um, but there's Medici Masters of Florence, a Netflix series that has the guy who plays the King of the North, the initial King of the North. I forget his name. Um, he's one of the Starks, uh, the initial King of the North, and, and he gets killed at the Red Wedding. He plays uh, Cosimo de' Medici. And it's good. It's a little slow, I think, to get going as a series, but it's pretty good. But I want to see how much of the history they stay true to because I feel like more and more now people are realizing that, you know, if you're going to watch a historic piece, at least the overall major events should be historically accurate, right? There's no reason not to. Yeah, you can change, you make up the dialogue and the sort of internal personal squabbles, and there's going to be little action sequences here and there that didn't really happen. Fine. But. Overall, you know, the major battles and things like that, you'd like them to sort of track with reality. And anyway, I've always thought it'd be fun to be a professor of the classics who got to consult on a movie like Troy or, or, or you know, maybe if I was uh, specializing in Renaissance Europe to consult on this series. Uh, but the Medici is very well. I will say the production value is very good. I can recommend it from that, uh, from that end. Uh, I can also tell you um, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of nakedness. There's a lot of there's a lot of boobies. So for those of you that you know, not for this is not for the under eighteen crowd, and don't watch this one. Don't try to over the holiday. Don't be like, oh, you know, come here, kids. Like, let's throw on the Medici show. Like, no, 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 no. It's there's too much, too much going on there. Um, but another good historian, and, and I like these things because I I feel like you can always also in your head cross reference it with what you think the period would have looked like, and you know, and and I, and I like to check on the stuff. Anyway, it's a it's a personal thing that. You know, I, I do in my spare time because I'm obviously really exciting and, and love the party. But I was thinking about all this also because I read this piece. This is sort of a, that was a long diversion. And it's a piece put out by a woman. I don't know her. So this is not a personal slam. I don't, I don't do unnecessary personal slams. I really try not to do personal slams, period. I always love it when I go to CNN and I get personally slammed when we're talking about a policy issue. And I'm like, can we not? Why? Why is Why am I being like attacked all of a sudden? Like, you're not being attacked. We're just saying you're terrible. It's like, wait, I. I think saying I'm terrible is an attack, or, or I think saying I'm I'm anti-Muslim and a racist is an attack. I think, you know, I, I don't have a PhD, but uh, I do know some stuff. Speaking of PhDs, this woman Donna Zuckerberg writing for a publication that I'd never heard Edelon. I'd never heard of it before. I'm not sure it's big, but it got a little bit of attention from some of the conservative intelligentsia. The headline of it was "Under a Bad Emperor." Uh, oh, sorry, how to be a good classicist under a bad emperor. And, you know, this woman has a Ph.D. from Princeton. She teaches at Stanford University. So, I mean, we're talking very fancy places. It doesn't really get much fancier than Princeton and Stanford. I mean, there's Harvard and there's Yale, but, you know, Princeton and Stanford are right up there. Um, I knew there was a problem with this, though, because not only when you sort of get into a, a little bit of her piece, um, you can see that she's sort of a far-left um ideologue and has adopted a lot of this sort of progressive orthodoxy as unalterable truth 
she also has a book coming out. Not and I shouldn't even say it because like I feel like I'm giving her free advertising on the show, but this will tell you a lot. Not all dead white men is the title of it. A study of the reception of classics uh, is due to be re- released by Harvard University Press uh, coming up next fall. Not all dead white men. A study of the classics. Yeah. I'm going to say that, like, most of the people in ancient Greece that had a really big impact on Greek philosophy and, and literature and art, I'm going to say most of them were white men. I'm going to put that out there. You know, that, this is, it's likely that in ancient Greece that was true. Just saying. Um, but she has a different point of view. But that's not even really what I wanted to get into here. As you can see, I'm bouncing around with my thoughts on this one. Uh, she talks about... Well, let me read you a bit of a, a bit of this piece. A specter is haunting the internet. The specter of the alt right. Ah, somebody who's a PhD in the classics talking about the alt right. This should be interesting. The forces of white supremacy and toxic masculinity, fueled by a sense of entitlement, dwarfed only by their inflated estimation of their own intelligence, have entered into an unholy alliance to remove feminism, political correctness, and multi- multiculturalism from America. Now. Stop there for a second. See, this is what I was trying to say to you before, and I know I'm on with some of you. Some of you are a little like, "What?" And I, with a lot of folks, you're on sort of dangerous ground. The moment you say, "Well, hold on a second, is this guy Spencer and these racist buffoons? Are they the alt right, or is there something else that's a part of the alt right?" Or because the alt right used to refer to something else, it's now been co-opted, it seems, by sort of neo-Nazi white nationalists. But that's not how it was, even by the New York Times, referred to a while ago, and. Uh, removing feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism from America, like, I I want that on my resume. So I don't want that to be something that only the alt-right is doing or that the alt-right has some sort of a claim to beyond me. I I just just put this out there. Okay, but back to her piece. She writes this, like, these these hateful words, and it's so terrible that I want to get rid of feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism. I, I think those things should be eradicated immediately. All right. On November 8th, 2016, after enduring years of mockery, months of being told that they are the, they are the arc of the moral universe, uh, would never let it win, the alt-right scored its first significant political victory, the election of Donald Trump, to the highest office of the most powerful country in the world. Uh, last week, this is this woman writing, this uh, PhD from, uh, from Princeton who teaches, remember, she teaches the classics, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, yada, yada. Um, so... She she writes here, last week I gave two lectures about my research on classics and the manosphere. Now, first of all, anyone who uses the manosphere in any uh, with any level of seriousness is worthy of mockery, period. Right? Anyone who talks about the manosphere, we need to make fun of, full stop, just the way it is. Um, and which is great. So she uses the term manosphere. And then she sort of goes on to talk about how we need to fight back against the manosphering of the classics. And she's worried that the alt-right, when it talks about Western civilization, is hijacking the real sort of study of Western civilization. And she wants to push back against this. But I want to also give you some of it because I'm sure this is representative now because all these academics, they all parrot each other. And they all want to stay within certain guidelines that they're sort of creating as they go. But it's, you know, they are in a constant evolution of the progressive echo chamber, right? It's just they're all trying to stay within it. And, yeah, it's sort of shifting over time, but they're trying to shift together. 
You know, think of it like all the kids chasing one soccer ball around, right? They're all clumping together. That's how in different uh, humanities, in different areas of the humanities with, with academics, who this is what they do. They teach at these universities and they have these wonderful jobs where you have very little pressure and very little stress. Once you get tenure, before then it's like misery and you're underpaid and it's terrible. But once you get tenure, you're in great shape. Um, and you're generally speaking, especially at these elite institutions, really overpaid. But she says, this is what to do about the manosphering of the classics that will occur under a Trump administration, right? So we're, we're pulling a bunch of threads together here. We're pulling Trump's victory together with the manosphering of the classics and the alt-right. And, you know, this is all a big mishmash, but it's kind of fun to, to get into it. She writes, when you hear someone, be they a student, a colleague, or an amateur, say they are interested in classics because of the Greek miracle or because classics is, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, Challenge that viewpoint respectfully but forcefully. Engage them on their assumed definitions of, quote, foundation, quote, Western, quote, civilization, and, quote, culture. Point out that such ideas are a slippery slope to white supremacy. Seek better reasons for studying classics. Uh, so this is a PhD from Princeton who teaches at Stanford, writing publicly about how Somebody who says they want to study the classics, which I did as a, you know, as a sort of a, a lay person over the course of my studies. I am not an expert in the classics by any means, nor would I ever pretend to be. But it was sort of a, a foundation or at least a backdrop to much of my study and much of what I've been interested in since. But if you're interested in that because the classics are, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, you should be challenged on literally every word in that sentence. You should be challenged on what is culture, on what is civilization, on what is Western. This is her advice to people, um, because not only is that super annoying, but also to add on top of that, she believes that to think in those terms is a, quote, slippery slope to white supremacy. This is madness. This is uh, this is madness. And as Leonidas says. This is Sparta. We'll be right back. Go to Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey team, just returning to this uh, Donna Zuckerberg piece here. Uh, she also writes these are these are her ideas for people going forward to deal with the alt rights co uh, co option of the classics because Western civilization and the Western miracle somehow is now akin to white nationalism. It's just insane. I don't even know what that. I mean, she's just gone off the deep end here. But she writes in your scholarship, focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Uh, and, of course, read and cite the work of scholars who write about race, gender, and class in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, there was slavery in ancient Greece. It wasn't based on race. It was just slavery, which has existed for thousands of years in the world and uh, is talked about in America only in the context of American slavery. Forget We forget about Islamic slavery, and we forget about slavery in the ancient world. And Anyway, um, but I just think this is fascinating. To focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Okay, I mean, we're talking about the ancient world. You know, what? where are we talking about here? 
Uh, we're not talking about we're talking about Greece and Rome. I don't know. Not a lot of not white men come to mind in terms of what I said: leadership, military. Maybe it's just these were oppressive societies in their own ways. Anyway, moving right along, I just think that's fascinating that this is now that even the classics have been politicized to this extent. That you have a PhD talking about the manosphere and the and how the alt right is trying to take over the study of Western civilization. Nothing is nothing is sacred. Nothing is safe anymore, my friends. Uh, hat tip to Mike. Another list of that he sent me of the most important books to all of humanity: the Bible, the Koran, the Communist Manifesto, the Republic, Wealth of Nations, Origin of Species, Relativity, Albert Einstein, and a Brief History of Time. Again, with the exception of the first two on that list, um, and very few people have read both. I think of those two, but. How many people have actually read The Communist Manifesto, Plato's Republic, Adam Smith, Wealth of, Na- Wealth of Nations, Darwin's Origin of Species, Einstein's Relativity? I know they've had a huge impact, but it's interesting to me that, I mean, let's be honest with ourselves for a minute. How many of us have actually read it? I'm not going to lie. I haven't read a bunch of them. I definitely read The Republic, The Communist Manifesto, um, haven't read uh, Relativity, and haven't read um, A Brief History of Time. Haven't even read Adam Smith. Shields high! The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.